If you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, and our main text will be verses 23 through 28. So you can stay there. And I will read, uh, beginning in some verses in chapter 10 for us. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls." Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the king of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So really what we have come to at this point in chapter 11 of Hebrews is, if you will, season three. Okay, if you if you enjoy watching TV shows, you know that the beginning of the season uh, of of a new season, rather of a show that you're watching, they they usually try to give you a really impressive start, right? That's to keep you engaged in the show as it goes on. So, if we were to break Hebrews 11 up into seasons, season one would be. Let me give you a really big word, if uh, kids, especially if you want to impress people, you can just throw this out there: antediluvian, right? So that's before the flood. Okay, the Antediluvian fathers, okay? So that was season one. We started with Abel and ended, of course, with Noah. And then we have the next section, which is the patriarchs. Hopefully not a word you're unfamiliar with, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? Joseph even. So the patriarchs. And now we get to the period of Moses and the wandering, the desert generation. So in this beginning of season three, we really have a four-episode event, right? It's like they tell you, okay, to start this new season of the, this era of the people of God, we're going to give you four episodes back to back to back to back. And that's what we have with the story of Moses. So how we're going to treat this, we're going to talk about each of these four episodes of Moses' life, and we're going to explain it a little bit, explain what the author is meaning with these different episodes explain why he's circling these events in Moses' life. And then we'll go through a few pieces of application in connection with each of them. And then at the end, we'll just say a few general things about the entire text as we conclude. So, the main overarching theme is the same as Hebrews 11 as a whole. Okay, so these four episodes of Moses' life share the same theme of all of Hebrews 11, right? Hopefully that's not too surprising. And that is this, faith in the Lord's faithfulness to fulfill His promises is the great unifier of the people of God. Doesn't matter what covenant you're under, whether you're an Israelite under the Old Covenant or a Greek under the New Covenant... Faith in God's faithfulness to fulfill His promises is what unifies the people of God. Deep-seated trust that He will do what He has promised. That's what unites us. Okay? And it was shared with all the way back to Abel. Okay? That he believed God would be faithful. And so all the people of God are united that way. So, let's look at the first episode here. I'll read verse 
23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So if we were to title episode one, we would call this origin story, right? And if, if you're familiar with superheroes or whatever, there's often an origin story and we're, we, we're kind of fatigued of origin story movies at this point, because there have been so many, but the author begins with Moses' origin story. And this is really a passage about Moses' parents. If you look closely, it is their faith, and it is their perseverance under difficult circumstances that gives flavor to this first episode of Moses' beginning. So what was the command, this edict, the king's edict that is being referenced here? You can find this in Exodus 1, verse 22. This is what Pharaoh says. Every son, so every male child, that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh was growing concerned that this large people that lived within his borders would become too strong, that there would be too many army, able men. And so he decides that he's going to remove this existential threat or possible existential threat from the picture by killing all the Hebrew male children. That's the edict. And what did they do? What did Moses' parents do? Eventually, in a sense, they obeyed. They put Moses into the Nile. We'll get to this in a little bit. It's, it's, a, it's very different from what you see in the movies about Moses. And everyone that you watch, you, you see Moses' mom or his daughter like pushing him out into the Nile. That, that is not what happened here. Okay, we'll, we'll get to explain that. It, it would be so odd for his parents to hide him for three months and like, well, we can't do this anymore. Put him in a basket, just throw him out in the river, right? But that's what happens in all the movies. That's not what's going on in the Bible, okay? That would be a very sharp change from their dedication for three months. No, they hide him in the reeds, we know in the story. And if you live by a lake or river or a drainage ditch or you're from the south, you know what this looks like, right? Bulrushes or, or reeds, they, they're five, six, seven feet tall, and the water might be four or five feet deep around it or even shallower. And so they hide the basket in the water in that place to continue hiding him. Okay. But before that, before that, they hide him in their house, presumably, for three months. And just imagine how difficult this would have been. Okay? I've, I've, we're about to welcome a third into our home. And any of you who have grown up in a house with a baby, if you're a firstborn or secondborn and you have younger siblings, or if you're a parent and you know what it's like to have a newborn in your house, imagine trying to hide the fact that you have a newborn for three months. All the crying and Sleepless nights of trying to do your best to keep that child silent so that the guards or the, the, your neighbors who might rat you out don't know that you have a newborn boy. And so this is outright defiance of the king's order. He says, if you've got a male child, you're supposed to throw him into the Nile so that he would drown. And they completely reject that. And when they couldn't do it any longer, they continued hiding him after three months in the Nile, away from people, presumably, out where it's remote. And they leave uh, Moses' sister, Miriam, to watch and just to make sure nothing bad happens to him as he's being hidden down there in the reeds. And there's a lot that could be said about this story, and uh, you can even... It, it's a, actually a pretty hilarious story if you think about it. Moses' mother is trying to hide her child so that he's not killed, and what ends up happening is she gets paid to nurse her own son. I, I don't know if that's ever happened in the past, but that's the one instance in human history where a mom got her due, right? <laughs> paid to nurse her own son, right? This is a hard job. So... That's a lot, that, a lot more that could be said about this story. But the author's point is to not say everything that can be said about this instance with the parents. He's mainly interested in why they did it. Why did Moses' parents hide him? The text in Exodus, all it says, this is how the ESV renders it, she saw that the child was beautiful. Or she saw that 
He was a fine child. The Hebrew is literally something like this. She saw him that he was good. And the ESV Study Bible, if you have that, it points out in that place in Exodus that this may be an intentional echo of God's wording in the creation of the world. And God saw the light or the land or the animals or whatever, and it was good. So she saw him that he was good. And uh, one might ask at this point, well, what would have happened if Moses were an ugly baby? And every mom, I think, or at least most moms, view their baby as the most beautiful baby that there can be. But uh, one has to wonder, well, if he was born and just, just an ugly baby, what, would we have this story at all? Um, but I don't think that what the author is saying, and you have to remember, this is going to come up a few more times, Moses is the one writing Exodus. So he's writing his own story. So we don't have to imagine what a different author is remembering about an oral tradition. Moses is writing his own family story. So he has direct access to this. But what his mother says, and it represents his mother and his father because they hide him together. She says, he's good or he's beautiful. And for the Christian you have to understand that the good, the true, and the beautiful are the same. The good, the true, and the beautiful are the same, or all of them lose their meaning. If the good can be good without being beautiful, then it's no longer good. If we can say that something is true, but it's not good, it's no longer true. So all three of those, the good, the true, and the beautiful, are all together. So there, he's, her, uh, Moses' mother, rather, is essentially saying... He's good. He's beautiful. This is something that is truly a gift from God, a good thing, objectively. Not just a clump of cells. Not just another mouth to feed. Not an inconvenience to their career. This is a beautiful child. Though she doesn't say it explicitly, it might even be a recognition that this child is from God, made in the image of God. And they were not afraid. We will not allow this child to be thrown into the Nile. Even though the most powerful man in the world has commanded all his people and including us to do so, we will do whatever it takes to keep him alive. So with creativity, with dedication, with secrecy, with cunning even, they disobey the king. Few points of application as we go through and finish out this first episode of Moses' life. Part, at least part, of the way of faith is opposition to the commands of powerful people. Not necessarily brazen protests, but humble, quiet, creative, dedicated, secretive, and cunning. Jesus commands us to be as wise as serpents, gentle as doves. And often the way of obedience means we, uh, to God means that we must disobey the expectations of wicked, powerful people. Now, I don't think much of what, what, what we have had to endure in, here in the United States this year even compares with the horror of what Moses' parents had to deal with. If you can imagine being in their shoes... How terrifying that must have been, or how anxiety-provoking that would have been. But eventually it might. We might face a day when it is just as terrible. And the God of this world has certainly bound those in His dark domain to do all sorts of evil things against the people of God. And behind every mandate that opposes the church behind every persecution, behind every institution that hampers the advance of the gospel, behind every insult, behind every opposition relationally stands the enemy. But he is a defeated foe, and one little word shall fell him. But regardless, if you have to make a choice for the Lord, like Moses' parents, it can be just simple, humble obedience each and every day. And that's where our defiance against the enemy rests. Each and every day, humbly, quietly obeying the Lord.
Another point of application before we move to the next episode. Parents, the most important thing you'll probably ever do is saving your children. And ultimately, their salvation is not in our hands. But consider your life. We don't know much about Moses' parents. We know their names, but we don't really know anything else that happened to them or anything great that they did other than this one humble, quiet act of obedience and defiance to the king. Their names are Amram and Jochebed, and that's about all we know. They had no plans for great change. Could they have possibly envisioned that Moses would eventually be used by God to bring the children of Israel out in the Exodus? I don't think so. No, they simply set their hope in God, even if it meant they would die for it. Even if it meant they would die for doing the right thing. They loved their son, and they would not let him be destroyed. And we are not in Egypt, and there is no longer a Pharaoh, and we are not being commanded to kill our children, but... The subtle draw of our culture and its expectations is almost as bad, if not worse. What we are encouraged to let our children see, hear, experience, learn, and think is probably worse than drowning in the Nile. What do we ourselves let our children's hearts and minds be influenced by through the devices and screens in our very own homes? Do we even know who and what is influencing and shepherding our hearts and our children's hearts? No, you might not be tossing them into the now, but you might be allowing something worse to happen to them spiritually, even in your very own home, under your very nose. Do you see your children as good and beautiful? Don't despise them or shrink back from the awesome privilege of protecting them and shepherding their hearts at all costs. Now verse 24. This is episode two. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So episode two in Moses' life, if we were to give it a title, we could just say conflict. The initial disturbance. Every story kind of has this pattern. You have the setting, the origin, and then you have some disturbance that enters the picture. And this is episode two. And he explains his whole young life by saying he grew when he was grown up. And we, we can actually infer some type of connection with his parents and his people from the narrative in Exodus because he knows, he identifies himself with his people. He knows that he's not an Egyptian, but that he's a Hebrew. He was able to grow up in Pharaoh's own court and to still have some connection with his own people. And we're not sure at what age he goes to live in the palace with his adopted Egyptian mother. The text says in Exodus... When he was grown. So what does that mean? When he's four or three? When he's weaned? Does that mean when he's like 12? Does that mean when he's no longer a boy? When when is that? When he goes and lives with the Egyptian princess? We're not sure. But at any rate, the author assumes some sort of knowledge of God. We know from Stephen's speech in Acts 7 that he also learned the wisdom of the Egyptians. So he's educated. Maybe he read the history and knew what really happened with Israel, the full story. Maybe he's a book nerd, right? It's not such a bad deal, guys. And maybe he was reading the the historical record of this people coming in with Joseph and Jacob, and he understands what really happened. 
And then he chooses to identify with the Hebrews rather than with the Egyptians. Either way, this is a remarkable person. He has knowledge of both cultures and knowledge enough to decide clearly between them. I'm going to reject this and choose this. And he did so. He refused. That's what the text says. He refused to be called the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. So there's more. If, if, you, if you watch some of the movies about Moses, he, he just like accidentally happens to be out among the slaves and he kills a guy. Like there's, there's more in it than just happenstance. He intentionally rejects his Egyptian adopted family and goes out and identifies with the people of God, the Hebrews. And it's in that setting that that episode occurs. He goes out. He, imagine the emotional turmoil that have, would have, in, he would have incurred in this, rejecting his Egyptian adopted mother after spending quite a while with her. Because he's 40 when he leaves Egypt. We're going to get to that in episode 3. He chooses mistreatment and not the pleasures of sin. Consider his perspective. He wouldn't have been in line to become Pharaoh, but all of the palace and all of the pleasures and all of the food and all of the books and all of the horses and all of the chariots would have been his. And he says, no. Many of us envision what would happen if we were given a huge inheritance or we... we, stumbled into a, a large sum of money. Well, I would do this, I would buy this. Moses had it, okay? He inherits Wayne Manor, so to speak, and he chooses to reject it all and go out and be identified with his people. What would you give up to be with the people of God? Couldn't Moses just stay in the palace and know God directly and worship Him alone in His ivory tower, so to speak? Could he just pray for his own people from the palace and pray that God would send a deliverer and and make the world a better place for the Hebrews? Why did he have to reject it? Why did he have to go and be with them? Because he wanted to be with the people of God. What would you give up? He goes outside the palace, chooses mistreatment instead of the pleasures of sin, and probably in his mind he understands that the only reason uh, Egypt is prospering this way is because uh, Egypt has enslaved the people of Israel. So this is through sin that we have these pleasures. So he's rejecting that, the pleasures of sin, for mistreatment. He goes outside leaves all the comfort and ease to be mistreated. And the text says, he considered, this is verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt. Now this is a tricky text. We've got to be careful. It's difficult to translate. Um, And there's a few different ways that it can be taken. I'll kind of give you my take. Moses may have understood that his sufferings were pointing to a greater deliverer. He might have understood that. He might have been well familiar with all the promises. He might have been informed in the oral tradition that would later become the first five books of the Bible, right? Because Moses writes these down as oral tradition is handed to him. He might have understood in these promises, even going back to the oral tradition of what happened in the curse, from your offspring one shall crush his head while he bruises his heel, right? At what the theologians call the proto-evangelion. He might have understood that, but we're not sure. He might have knew that a greater deliverer would come. And in that sense, Moses would be a shadow of the fullness, which is Christ. So the reproach of Christ would then mean he knew that a greater Messiah, a greater anointed one would come, and so he's pre-enacting the deliverance of that future Messiah. But how much did he know? It's not really clear. At least at the end of his life, Moses tells the people of Israel when they're waiting to go into the promised land, one day God is going to raise up a prophet like me from among you. Listen to him. 
So, so Moses had some understanding that one would come greater than him, like the, the second Moses, in a sense, who would then lead the people and the people should listen to him. So he had some messianic understanding, but what he understood at this point in his life, we're not sure. At least we know that he understood it was right to endure suffering for the sake of the people of God. It was right to endure suffering for the sake of the people of God. And it was right to reject sin and endure reproach. And he understood that this reproach was as good as a guarantee that God would bless him. So that's clearly Christological. If he understood it or not, it doesn't matter. He knows that God will reward those who intentionally endure hardship for the sake of God's people. Does that not sound like Christ? This could mean, uh, one of the commentaries I was looking at, this could be worded as suffering in the cause of Christ. He considered that the reproach of Christ or suffering in the cause of Christ, whether he knew it to be Christ or not, someone who would come later, this was Christ's redemptive purpose. Either way, the author of Hebrews is showing us that Moses, in choosing suffering with the people of God and for the people of God, is like Christ. He's a type, a foreshadowing of Christ. And further, this is fascinating in a few ways. This verse, verse 26, is the only place in Hebrews 11 where Christ is mentioned explicitly. Which, that's fascinating for a few reasons, and we'll get to that in the application. But he considers this reproach, this suffering in the cause of Christ, if you will, greater wealth. He desired this reproach as a possession he, it wasn't like, well, I've got to get something else, so I'm going to go endure hardship, sort of like we, when we, like we want to get a particular weight or a physical form, we go work out and we endure suffering for that objective, right? That's not how he's viewing this reproach. He says that he considered the reproach of Christ, the reproach itself, as greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. He would rather have that reproach. In a sense, it is a treasure beyond treasure. Even, I think, echoing back to chapter 10 when the author of Hebrews exhorts his congregation, you joyfully endured the plundering of your own possessions. How, how does a person do that? If, how can they rejoice in the midst of all of their stuff being stolen? Only if they see that reproach, that enduring of the suffering, as preparing them, like we talked about last week, for a greater treasure. And it's also exemplified in the apostles as they leave the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were accounted worthy to suffer reproach for the name. And the author says he was looking for the reward. At the end of verse 26, for he was looking to the reward. And it's unclear what reward he was looking toward in his rejection of the riches of Egypt. But it's clear that in his mind there was some kind of reward to be had. That he believed God would reward him for enduring this reproach. And that having that reproach, incurring the reproach of the world, identifying with the people of God is a guarantee that God will bless you. He's not suffering for the sake of suffering. Okay, That's not how God works. Perhaps in his being familiar with the people and the wisdom of the, re, of the Egyptians rejecting the sins of Egypt, he had an understanding of the very promises God made to Abraham. Maybe that's the reward he has in mind. If I identify with the people of God, if I help the people of God, then those promises God made to Abraham that I've learned from my parents or whoever he learned it from, he identifies with them now, so the promises are now his. Maybe. But whatever the way, the description of prototypical faith when, when the author is talking about Abel, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That applies to Moses here. He does these things, he follows in obedience, seeing that there is a reward. 
So a few point of applications. First, I really want you to consider this. There is always reward in the equation. Christianity is not a call to reject desire or to push out every thought about what you want. No, Christianity is a call to want what is truly best for you and to want it more than anything. There is real reward in glory. In the new creation, for those who choose this harder way, for those who enter through the narrow gate, the Lord wants you to desire this reward. And to desire it abundantly, right? It's not, there, I've mentioned this before, but there's a song that I sang and heard growing up that, that almost pictures that, that we, should, we should lessen our desires for that reward. Give me just a cabin in the corner of glory land. That is not a Christian motivation. We should want every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to be given to us. It is our right through union with Christ. Will he hold anything back from you that is good if he has even given you his own son? And that's how Paul, the apostle, thinks about his own life. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of glory, a reward beyond comparison. He, Paul has pushed all his chips to the middle of the table and is expecting to cash in in glory. Number two. But, there's always a counterpoint. There is great reward. There is reward for those who suffer with Christ, who endure this kind of reproach with Him. But it always comes with that reproach. The path is always through some kind of suffering or hardship. So much so that the author does not connect the reward one day in this chapter explicitly with Christ. He rather connects the reproach with Christ. The only time in this chapter that he mentions Christ, it's reproach. Because he's building up to a time when finally, I think it's in chapter 12, let us go, it's chapter 13, let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach that he bore. It's his final, essentially his final exhortation to his hearers. Christ always comes with reproach, brothers and sisters. Jesus says, if they hated me, they will hate you. We can go all the way back to Moses and even all the way back to righteous Abel and see that this is always true. It doesn't have to be through the form of a government oppressing us through laws, but the world, the flesh, and the devil will always hate us. How much reproach have we endured for the sake of Christ? And we shouldn't be rude or unkind to essentially invite the reproach of other people, all right? We shouldn't become a stench to other people. However, Moses made significant changes in his life that he knew would result in reproach, scorn, rejection, shame, hatred even of the Egyptians. And this, this is the crazy thing. This wasn't unexpected. This wasn't even an unwanted result of his rejection of the sinful lifestyle of the Egyptians and all of that treasure. This is what he knew would happen. And he considered the reproach itself as more wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. And those were very great treasures, right? Um, they When the people leave Egypt, God causes the Hebrews to have favor in the eyes of the Egyptians and they give them all their jewelry and that's enough jewelry just from their ears and their bracelets to make a whole golden calf. So there's a great many treasures in Egypt and Moses says, no, this reproach, the scorn and the hatred that I will endure for rejecting all that is is more valuable than all of those treasures. And lastly, we've already mentioned this. But what would you give up to be with the people of God? How important is solidarity with the people of God to you? Is personal Christianity enough? Can we just stay in the palace and 
worship God by ourselves and pray to Him directly and hope that He comes and delivers and helps His people? Is being a consumer Christian enough where you come and you take and get, but you don't give and enter in and fight for the sake of your brothers and sisters? Are you ashamed, perhaps, to associate with the people of God publicly? Now let's move to episode 3. Verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. So episode 3, if we were to give it a title, we could call it Exile. This always happens in a good story, right? There's an initial, dis- there's the origin, the initial disturbance, and then it gets really dark and bad for a while. You reach the low point before the resolution, right? This would be uh, the Empire Strikes Back, essentially. The things are dark and bleak. Exile. Moses leaves Egypt. This is most likely referring to Moses' first departure from Egypt. It's not talking about the later departure when he leads the people out. That would break the flow of the narrative because the next episode is the Passover. And further, there's no fear in the king at all when they leave the second time. The the king and all the Egyptians are basically begging the Hebrews to leave. So this is talking about his first departure. And this is somewhat a problem because this text says he was not afraid of the king. And yet in Exodus, if you read closely, it says that he was afraid. So is this the Bible contradicting itself? Is the author of Hebrews unaware of what the Bible is saying? Not at all. It is clear he's, he knows exactly what the Greek Old Testament is saying. He's not unaware of the narrative. No, but if you look at Hebrews closely, I think the link here is actually to his parents. So look at what it says about his parents. Not fearing the king's edict. And so in Moses' life, he doesn't fear the anger of of the king. So when it says not fearing the king's edict about his parents, that's an interpretation on his part. There's no place in Exodus that says his parents didn't fear, but it's obvious in their action. They did not fear the consequences enough to divert them from obedience. And so that is what is going on with Moses. We can safely assume in Moses' parents' case that there was perhaps quite a bit of anxiety. Or concern that if they were found out, they would probably be executed, and their child as well. Can you imagine, like, we don't have time to spend much time on this, but can you imagine living in a setting where it was law to kill your male children when they were born? Just, just the sheer terror of that. How, how dark, spiritually dark and just physically oppressive that would have been. But Moses' parents, they didn't didn't fear the king so much so that it trumped their faith. Their faith conquered their fear, and they obeyed God rather than man. So just like his parents, Moses overcomes his fear. Or better yet, his faith was stronger than his fear. Or became stronger than his fear, and it led to action. For his parents, the action they took was hiding Moses. And for Moses, it was leaving Egypt and living in exile. And perhaps that's the same thing he would have done if he was operating in fear. But the author is reading Exodus very closely. And we'll get to this in a minute, what he sees. And he understands that Moses isn't staying in exile because of fear. It's through faith. We'll get to how he sees that in a moment. He does it in faith. That's what the author is claiming. He says, how is he able to do this? This is the key phrase. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. It could be worded this way. For he kept the one who is invisible continually before his eyes. That's how one of the commentaries phrased it. He kept the one who is invisible continually before his eyes, as it were. This is not a real sight being talked about. Keeping the unseen one before your eyes. So this is not talking about the burning bush. That's at the end of his time in Midian. He's talking about an intentional act on the part of Moses to keep the one true invisible God before the eyes of his heart. So 
kind of two possible meanings of this. I think they're probably both true. He's, the idea could be that he had endurance because he saw the invisible one by faith. Or he had a firm, he held firm to the sight of the invisible one by faith. I think both are true. They're, they're complementary. Both are probably right. But how can the author see this? This is an important question. How can the author of Hebrews look back at the story of Exodus and say, Moses was an exile through faith. He continually kept the invisible one before his eyes, even before he saw the burning bush. And I think here's, here's the reason. The author is intentionally, and I would say surprisingly, avoiding some of the bigger events in Moses' life. Right? If we were writing the story about Moses, we would, we would underscore and highlight a few different things, not necessarily what the author here is underscoring. I think of the Ten Commandments, right? I think of the Ten Plagues, a few other, the burning bush, no less. Bigger events than what he's describing here. But there's a few reasons that he's focusing on these uh, underappreciated episodes in Moses' life, and that is to underscore the, the, the role of faith in Moses' life. The author doesn't need to show his work necessarily like, like I might need to in this setting because if you were one of the original audiences of this letter, you would have been very, very, very familiar with Moses in the whole story. It's like growing up in our culture and being really familiar with the Avengers or Batman. Okay, And I'm sorry I reference this all the time, but it's kind of like our mythology. Um, but... If you grow up in our culture, you know all sorts of things and all sorts of details and different versions of the story of all these different heroes. Even from a young age, like, like Pokemon, right? If you know all the attacks and you know how all the power-ups work and you know how they all interrelate to each other. That's how I know that kids can understand a lot more than we give them credit for. But, because I can't even figure out all those things. So, when the author writes to these people, Moses is for them a bigger deal than all of those things combined in their culture. Moses is, as it were, the most important figure for a Jewish person in the Old Testament. And so as he's going through this story, he doesn't necessarily need to show his work to prove his point because the people already understood the whole story. But here's what I think he's circling this is my interpretation, okay? So take it with a grain of salt. The place where we can see Moses in this faith-filled perspective, not fear. He, it's very clear, in a sense, he has fear when he realizes that the king is aware of his killing of the Egyptian. But how can the author of Hebrews say that he left Egypt in faith and persevered in the wilderness in faith? And I think it's in one specific place. It's in the naming of his son. And biblically, in the narrative, you know that anytime someone names their child, it's theologically significant. Even God, he tells people to name people certain things for theological reasons. And remember, Moses is the one writing Exodus. And there's only two things up until Moses sees the burning bush that Moses says in the whole story. He only includes two quotes for himself as he's writing his own story. One is when he realizes that the thing is known. He says, surely the thing is known. That's the first quote that Moses includes for himself. So maybe that's his fear. And then when he names his son. This is only the second quote that Moses includes for himself in all of Exodus. For the first 80 years of his life. She, Zipporah, his wife, gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershon because he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So that's the only thing that Moses says as far as Exodus is concerned for his 40 years in Midian until he encounters God in the burning bush. So Moses himself underscores this quote the naming of his son. This idea of sojourning is very prominent in Hebrews 11. You can just go back to in the middle of verse 13. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus 
make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, in Moses' case, Egypt, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So Moses doesn't call him another Hebrew name. I, know, I don't know what it would have been to say, I am a sojourner. So he's not talking about Midian. And he doesn't say, I was a sojourner, talking about Egypt. He says, I have been a sojourner. He recognizes that neither Egypt nor Midian is his real home. He's looking to the promise of God, either for the promised land itself or the greater country. So a few points of application for this episode three. His faith was active in his placing God before his eyes. He he kept the invisible one before his eyes, as it were. And he was able to endure through this 40-year exile because of this. Understand this, your faith is not like a contract signed and sealed and put away somewhere in a safe, locked away. The Holy Spirit does seal you, but you don't seal your faith away under lock and key. It is continual and even a daily practice to Put the Lord, the invisible one, before your eyes. In Ezekiel, we are commanded not to lift up our eyes to idols. And the psalmist in uh, Psalm 24 says, Blessed is the one who does not lift up his soul to what is false. It's the same thing. This is a deliberate action of faith to set the Lord himself before your eyes. This is your activity. This is your doing to place him in front of the eyes of your heart. And to specifically turn the eyes of your heart away from other things and set them on the Lord. That is what faith does in Moses' life. And it enabled him to endure and made his faith conquer his fear. Second application from this, Moses was a perpetual sojourner. This is almost a reminder more than an application because we've talked about this for weeks. So Moses is born in Egypt, not his homeland. He goes and is in exile in Midian for 40 years, not his homeland. He goes back to Egypt, gets the people and wanders in the wilderness and dies. He's always a sojourner. So what of God's promise To Moses, who lived his life of faith. God prepared for him a homeland, a better country, a heavenly one. And we are the same. Brothers and sisters, our home is not here, and it is certainly not in Palestine. And for me, it is not Texas. And for you, it is not wherever else you came from. And it is not another more beautiful or freedom-loving state, if you could find one, than Idaho. Our home will not be here until all of here is remade. Our home is where Christ is. And until he comes and establishes his kingdom here on the last day, we will not be in our home. Are you okay with that? Better question, does your life show that you really understand this? And this is, in a sense, an answer to the previous question. The more you feel right at home, the less you will really feel the need to set the Lord before your eyes because you won't feel the need to endure as a sojourner. If we're not home, then we need that spiritual sight of the Lord to endure this life of sojourning. But if you feel right at home, what's the need? Number three, I think there's something to be said here about how to conquer fear. It is clear from the Exodus text that Moses begins in fear, but the author of Hebrews correctly interprets that his faith overcame his fear. And he overcame his fear by trusting in God and placing God before his eyes. All of us are afflicted in so many different ways, 
whether it be fear or anxiety, depression, just angst, anger. But fear conquers over those things as we set the Lord before our eyes. That is an act of the will. It is not necessarily things that you do to your body. It is willful, deliberate, placing Him and the reward of Christ before your eyes. That's how you conquer fear, anxiety, depression, whatever it is. And I say that as a person who has found freedom that way. Episode 4, verse 28. By faith He kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. If we were to title this episode four, we would call it Deliverance, maybe, or just Passover. And the first place, uh, the first thing that he says about this, this final episode of Moses' life that he recounts is that he kept the Passover. This is the major event in Moses' life, and indeed it is a major event in all of human history. You could reconstruct the great arc of human history relating it directly to Passover. It is as if God is preparing the world for the preview. And then He gives the preview, the actual Jewish festival of Passover. And then He prepares the world from that time for the real thing, the real Passover. And then He gives the real Passover lamb in Christ. And now He is preparing us to take us into our eternal home, the promised land of heaven. And that's not the only one. You can do that with many other things like creation, marriage, man, first man, second man, those things. But Passover is one of those uh, organizing arcs of human history. So this is a big deal. But why set this apart for Moses' life? Why is this the final episode we get? How do we see Moses' faith? Other than the obvious significance for all of human history, what is it for Moses that makes this an example of faith. Number one, Moses understood and did not presume on God's grace, God's mercy, God's alignment with the people. Because you remember with the previous nine plagues, what happened to the people of Israel? They were spared. Darkness comes, uh, locusts come, Gnats come, lightning, hail, all of these things. Fire, frogs, blood. But the Israelites are spared the entire time. And they don't have to do anything. They just sit and witness the great and awesome power of God. But with the Passover, it's a little bit different. And Moses didn't presume on God's faithfulness to his people to say, well, yeah, the destroyer is going to come, but we're God's people, so we don't have to do anything. God surely won't destroy us like he does the Egyptians. No, he believed the warning. He believed God's word that if they did not go through this rite of the blood over the doorpost, that God would strike down the firstborn even of his own people. He believed God and he kept the commands regarding the Passover to a T. So motive and thought is not the only important thing for Moses. He obeys, just like we saw with Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Moses obeyed and kept the Passover. So that's why he's highlighting it for Moses' life. He didn't presume on God's grace or mercy or kindness. He kept God's commands. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. You could call this the embodiment or personification of God's holy justice or judgment. There was no distinction based on race or ethnicity or geography. The only distinguishing characteristic that deterred the destroyer or invited the destroyer was the blood of the Passover lamb. How do you envision this being? If you watch the movies, you either see this this murky cloud in the Charlton Heston version creeping through the streets. That was a powerful image growing up as a kid. 
Or the Prince of Egypt, this light that shines down and goes through the entire city, probably a little more accurate, I don't know. But theologically, who is it? For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. It is the Lord with the destroyer, in a sense, at his right hand. It doesn't necessarily have to be an angel of death or a really special kind of entity. It could be any angelic being or even the power of God itself at work to kill the firstborn. But it's the Lord walking through the cities, looking at the doorposts. And if I see the blood, I will turn away the destroyer. But if I don't, the destroyer will come in. God... It's a consuming fire. And it says them, so that the destroyer would not kill them. So that the destroyer would not touch them. This is anticipating the people. And the next verse is regarding the people as they cross the Red Sea. So he's introducing them here in this verse. So that the destroyer would not touch them. So this indicates that Moses, in a sense, is acting for the people. He keeps the Passover. He makes sure that all the people know what they're supposed to do. He makes sure that they know all the stages of the process with the lamb and the the sacrifice and the meal and the doorpost and all of that. And so in this way, Moses is a type of Christ. You have a prince or, in a sense, royalty coming and entering into the reproach of his people, the suffering, and he keeps the Passover and ensures that the destroyer does not touch the people. And he spares the people. But that's the last mention of Moses in chapter 11. And that's, like I said, a little bit different than we would construct the story of Moses if we were supposed to underscore his movements of faith. And how Moses' life ends is not ideal, right? We know that he is prevented from entering the promised land because he did not uphold God as holy or just in the sight of the people. But the focus for the author here, he doesn't focus on Moses' failings, just like we've seen in the case of all the other people that we've looked at. He focuses on his faith. The parts of his story that show that he had this enduring, suffering, long-suffering faith in God. And so a few points of applications for this final episode and for the whole story of Moses together. I said earlier that Moses is a type of Christ, and that is true. But Moses is also a type of the believer. And this, I think, is the main reason that the author of Hebrews is underscoring Moses in this way. And why he's talking about these uh, underappreciated episodes of Moses' life rather than the ones that we're more familiar with. Because the author of Hebrews is trying to encourage his hearers to endure by faith in Christ like Moses did. So in a sense, Moses is not just a type of Christ. He's a type of us. He foreshadows the faithful of God. Even as Paul declares to the Corinthians, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And the danger of the destroyer still persists, right? Back in chapter 10, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed That's an intentional link, I believe, with the the author of Hebrews here, so that the destroyer might not touch them. Faith in God, in his provision of this Passover lamb, who is Christ, is the way that we endure as well, and the way that we are spared from the destructive touch of this destroyer. So we must share the faith of Moses and Stoke up our faith in God so that it conquers our fear. And nurture our faith in Him so that we obey. And grow our faith together so that we're willing to reject the pleasures of sin for the reproach of Christ. And encourage one another to believe in God like Moses did, that we would consider that reproach as greater treasure and greater worth than all the treasures of the world could give us.
Second point of application for this in the whole section. I mentioned this several weeks ago. But notice that there's no mention of the law in Moses' story here. That's different than what we might expect. Could, could the author have said, uh, by faith, Moses received the law? Maybe. But Paul says in Galatians, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So I think the author is intentionally setting up a contrast between the life that focuses on rule and regulation and just hearing God tell you something and do it and the life of faith. The life of faith says, these are God's promises. Therefore, I will live my life in accordance with these promises for this hope that he set before me. I don't know all the details of the hope, but I know that if I live my life trusting in God, making him my treasure, setting him before my eyes, that everything he has promised will come true. That is a world of difference between, well, did God tell me to do this or this? So I guess I'll do that because I don't want punishment. It is through faith in Christ, not the law, that we are saved. Further, this is the third application. The very thing that the world, the flesh, and the devil do, or the very things that they do to undo the work of God for his people is the very thing that God uses to bring about his purposes. The very thing that Pharaoh tried to do to oppress the people of Israel and to make sure they didn't increase is the very thing God used in his sovereignty to raise Moses up. Because his parents wouldn't have hid him and the princess of Egypt wouldn't have found him if his parents were not trying to protect him from what the king had already commanded. So in the enemy's attempt and in all of the wicked world's attempt to resist and stop the advance of God's kingdom, those actions are the very thing that God uses to advance his kingdom. Just like we see with Jesus. In this city, there were gathered together against Jesus, your holy servant, evil, wicked men. But it was to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The enemy cannot thwart God. And he cannot thwart us. Everything they try to do to stop us will only advance our cause. He's a defeated foe, but he's more than defeated. Everything he does will only work to our good. Humbly, as we, as we humbly, quietly, and creatively do what pleases the Lord, we can know that he uses that kind of faithfulness to advance his kingdom. And we don't have to bring the enemy to repentance. We don't have to transform the world. The, the Lord himself will judge the world. What he uses from us is this humble, quiet, creative, even secretive obedience. Further, this, this, is, a, this is in line with this, but the state is no threat to the purposes of God. As we said, the oppression of an evil king only brings about eventual deliverance for God's people. And in our day, yes, we can lament the fact that many of our rulers and those in high positions of authority do not submit to God. And they are doing things that are directly opposed to us, whether they say it or not. But we can rejoice even in that, because we can count that reproach as greater wealth than any possession in this life. And we can rejoice because we know that God is at work even in their opposition to bring about his kingdom. And for us, how we should respond when these things happen is to repent. To examine our hearts to see whether or not we truly trust in him. Because the Lord even brings difficult circumstances through the rulers of our age into our lives to test our faith. Even as he, as he did for the people of Israel through Pharaoh himself, through the Assyrians, through the Babylonians, 
through all the different nations that harassed them during the time of the judges and the time of the kings. It was all to direct their hearts back to him. So let us consider our ways and return to the Lord. Let us share the faith of Moses and allow this faith in God to triumph over any fear or any anxiety regarding the future of our nation, our place, our state, our city. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great hope that we share. We thank you for the grace at work in our lives that enables us to have this faith in you. Give us the wisdom and the will to stir that faith up, that it would conquer our fears and our anxieties. And help us bear one another's burdens as we lift each other's arms up. Even as Moses needed his arms lifted up, that we would trust in you and persevere as we lean on the strength that you have given one another in this room. Please encourage us as we go and help us see the city that you've prepared for us. May we live each day to gain that eternal home. In Jesus' name, amen.